everyone. Welcome back to Here to Apologetics. I'm super pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. Harold Netland. We're going to be talking about his new book on religious experience and the existence of God. So, Dr. Netland, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I am doing well. It's good to be with you, Zach. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about your new book called Religious Experience and the Knowledge of God. It's looking at the nature of religious experience and how it can weigh in the question of, like, does God exist? But before we get into that, Dr. Netland, do you want to talk a little bit about, like, who you are and what you do? Sure. Um it might uh, be a little helpful in understanding the book to know that I was born in Japan. I grew up in Japan. My parents uh, were missionaries there. So uh, until age 18, I had that uh, cross-cultural experience. Japan is a heavily Buddhist uh, country. And um, then uh, I ended up doing my doctoral study in philosophy in right around the 1980s, 83, uh, under John Hick. And um, terrific, terrific uh, instructor, but uh, his approach to uh, religious epistemology is very much based on religious experience. So that kind of started me thinking in these terms. And uh, I've been teaching at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School for 27 years now uh, in philosophy of religion and intercultural studies. And the courses I teach um, are generally in the world religions, uh, religious pluralism, uh, religious epistemology kind of area. And so experience has always been um, part of the mix. And uh, about seven years ago, I finally just decided, you know what, let's, let's take it on. Uh, let's see what this is all about. And uh, the book is a result. It was a lot of fun to work on. And I found a lot of literature and a lot of issues involved there. So that's the short capsule uh, version. Mm, that's super helpful. And I love your book because it's super like looking at all kinds of different like thinkers, like you're looking at like philosophy and theology and like the apologetics and like how does this all kind of like fit together. So I'm really grateful for that and how like multidisciplinary it is. So we're going to dive straight into like looking at like the book and the nature of it. So can you just talk a little bit like when we're talking about a religious experience, Dr. Netland, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. The first two chapters really try to unpack that. And um, uh, briefly, a religious experience is any experience that the subject, the person who has the experience, or someone else regards as religiously significant. And that's pretty vague, and that includes an awful lot of territory. So you have to then get into defining what do you mean by religion and so on. Um, I think the more helpful way to take it is to think about certain paradigm experiences. And for example, take um, the experiences of the apostles and the Marys in the Gospels after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. They're at the tomb. Uh, Jesus appears to them, uh, speaks with them, and, uh, and Mary tries to uh, touch him and hold on to him. Okay, they're having experiences. Uh, whether you regard those as veridical or not, and veridical here just means they are as they appear to be. So whether you regard them as veridical or not, most people would say, okay, those are religious experiences. Uh, if you encounter the risen Christ, that's a religious experience. And then you have other experiences that are more ambiguous. And so um, you're praying for guidance. What, what, University should I apply to? 
and you feel a sense of uh, direction. Ah, I should apply to State University. And you say, God directed me to apply to State University. In the proper context, with the proper background beliefs, that makes perfectly good sense. And to speak about God directing me like that is to speak about a kind of experience of God. A, a secular naturalist can look at the very same experience and say, no, God didn't direct you. Uh, you just came to the conclusion on your own, state university is the right place to go. And so that would be a much more ambiguous kind of experience. It could be interpreted religiously, but it could also be interpreted non-religiously. Mm. So when you're talking in the book, Dr. Nutland, I'm curious, what do you mean when you're saying that like a religious experience is like veridical? Um, that word's super important in thinking about this. It is. It is. And think about the word truth. Uh, we use truth with respect to statements or beliefs or propositions. Uh, so a statement is true or false or a belief is true or false. We don't say that an experience is true or false. And so veridical is to an experience what truth is to a statement. So if an experience is as it appears to be, in other words, I look out the window and it seems to me that I'm looking at a tree and there's a robin in the tree. If in fact there really is a tree there and there's a robin in the tree, that's a veridical experience. Um, I look at a stick in the water and it looks bent to me. Uh, until I learn otherwise, I would assume, oh, wow, that stick is really bent. If I make that judgment, that's not a veridical experience. I'm really seeing the stick, but I'm seeing it as bent when, in fact, it isn't bent. And so most of us, as we uh, get socialized and grow and, and have more experiences, we learn to make those distinctions. Okay, it looks bent. It really isn't. Yeah, that's super helpful. So I, I'm thankful for that, Dr. Netlin. Uh, one more thing I'd be curious to talk about with like defining religious experiences. It seems like to me, like, is there any like exact way where we can categorize like all experiences? Like one thing I thought about as I was reading your book is you talk about like what, what, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, whatever, the German guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, and his like idea, like, and I've been listening to his book um, on philosophy recently that talks about like the game thing that you bring up, philosophical right. investigations. Right. And there's yeah. like, we have an idea of like what a game is, but there's no like exact like all encompassing definition that can define like all games. So would you say like yeah. religious experience would be similar, you think, in that respect? Yes, yes. Uh, there are lots of really important concepts that we um, really cannot define precisely. And, and that's not a problem. I mean, that's not a problem. Try to define the word meaning, for example. I mean, it's really, really tough. And so Wittgenstein's point was he was taking the, the word game and saying the word game has lots of different uses. Uh, if you just think about it in English, all kinds of different uses. And you can't come up with one neat definition that captures all the different uses. And, uh, and I think, and so he says, it's, it's like a family resemblance. You see a family portrait, grandparents, children, grandkids. There's similarities, but there's not any one thing necessarily everybody has in common. And so religion is kind of like that. And there are certain things that you can say, well, Islam is clearly a religion. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism are usually regarded as religions. Uh, other things are more ambiguous. Uh, Marxism, is that a religion? Some will say yes, some will say no. 
secular humanism. Some will say yes, some will say no. So there are certain family resemblances that bring religious things together. And uh, that's all we need to work with the concept of religion. Right. I think that's super helpful. So the next thing I'd love to get into, Dr. Natlin, is like your critical trust approach to religious experience. So this is the idea, well, an idea of developing, like how can, like, should we understand religious experience and maybe interpreting our own? So can you talk a little bit about like why it is, like what it is and like if it's your preferred model of thinking about like the nature of religious experience? Yeah. A critical trust approach is simply a term that, um, uh, I got from another uh, writer on religious experience, but it's referring to uh, a broad approach, most recently identified with Michael Humer. Uh, in religious experience, uh, Richard Swinburne would be the person most uh, well known for that. He developed the principle of credulity. And uh, the idea is this, um, experiences present to us what seems to be the case. So I look out the window again and I see a tree and I see a bird. Uh, another way to put that is, it seems to me that there's a tree and a bird out there. Um, that is presented to me as perception, a perceptual experience. Uh, and the critical trust approach simply says, it's reasonable to accept what seems to be the case unless we have compelling reason not to do so. Mm -hmm. And you asked, is that my preferred approach? Uh, I would go farther. Uh, it is unavoidable. We mm -hmm. use that in everyday life all the time. And uh, any other approach that I'm aware of, uh, epistemological approach, at some point has to rely upon that. So what seems to me to be the case whether I'm analyzing an argument, uh, looking at a mathematical proof, or just trying to solve a puzzle, what seems to me to be the case should be accepted as being the case unless there are good reasons not to do so. And uh, then, you know, we get into, well, what counts as a good reason? And uh, there are all kinds of things that could overturn that initial presumption. But the key point to get is we use this in ordinary life all the time. We could not live without using it. And any serious philosophical activity presupposes it. That's super helpful, um, Dr. Nutlin. So one thing that I think would be relevant to talk about here is you talk about like Plantigan epistemology in the book and about like a little bit different model of religious experience. And it's this idea that like religious belief could potentially be like a properly basic belief. Um, so do you want to like expound a little bit about like Plantigan, like a Plantigan view to religious experience and like why you think it may like fall short? Um, yeah, I'm just sure. curious what your thoughts are here. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a huge area, a huge subject. And yeah, yeah. Um, assuming that uh, those listening in have some background in Alvin Plantiga and properly basic beliefs, um, it's interesting. His, his argument and his claims are not usually associated with experience. Uh, but in fact, they are. Uh, they are arguments that grow out of ex a certain kind of experience. And his claim, uh, it varies a little bit over the years. And uh, the later Plantiga is not entirely, I don't think, consistent with the earlier one. But the basic idea is for Christians in certain circumstances, 
belief in the reality of God or belief that God loves me, these kinds of beliefs can be properly basic. And that means you don't derive them from anything more basic or more primitive. They're kind of on the foundation of the belief structure, so to speak. And it's entirely appropriate to accept them as such. And um, he would argue, and I would agree, um, we do accept many beliefs as properly basic. And we couldn't have discussions, we couldn't have rational analysis, we couldn't have argument uh, unless we did so. Aristotle called them first principles, different philosophers use different words. But that's clearly the case. The controversy becomes, does belief in God fit that particular set? And he strongly argues, yes. Uh, I would say for some people in some circumstances, I think that is the case. For most people in today's um, society with education and exposure to other ways of thinking, uh, I don't think it's quite that simple. And so there is a kind of uh, initial presumption that is challenged by potential defeaters or questions. And one of them, uh, getting back to our subject here, is simply experiences of other people in other traditions. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thank you for kind of um, bringing that down. So another important part of your book is this idea of looking at like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and like how they think about like the experience of God. This is a super helpful chapter because I think as like Christians, sometimes we can get like really bogged into like the philosophical weeds um, that will think about like the theology behind like our ideas behind like religious experience. And it also could be like vice versa. And this is something I really appreciate your book is you look at like from a philosophical lens, but also from like a theological lens, like as Christians, like how should we think about religious experience? Um, it's important, and we're getting into, like things like religious diversity a little bit. But like, what do Wesley and Edward say about like the experience of God? Yeah, um, I think it is important to address this from the perspective of ordinary believers, uh, because uh, I mean, I ask my students at TEDs regularly, um, you know, why are you a Christian? If someone were to ask you, why do you believe the gospel is true? What would you say? And usually the answer comes back in some form of experience. Mm -hmm. um, I just experienced the reality of God. I know he's real, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, personal testimonies, hugely important in the Christian tradition. As I was um, getting into the research, uh, I wanted to look at the early modern period. And... Um, and then, of course, I wanted to look at Edwards because he's such a pivotal figure here. Well, Edwards and Wesley were actually both born the same year. Uh, Edwards died uh, before Wesley did, uh, the different sides of the Atlantic. But they both encountered um, skepticism about the Christian faith, uh, not only from uh, secular non-Christian skeptics, but from established churchmen. You had the Great Awakening going on in uh, the colonies here with Edwards, and you had a series of revivals going on in the British Isles. And as part of that, um, you had some really extravagant experiences. I mean, uh, things we see today uh, have nothing on them. Uh, people having physical fits, foaming at the mouth, um, just all kinds of strange uh, bodily manifestations, people claiming 
that God revealed certain things to them. The early Quakers got into a lot of trouble here. So it was a time when experience was becoming really significant within certain church circles. And Edwards in particular was concerned to be able to sort out uh, how do you identify something as a genuine work of God as opposed to something that is not? Mm -hmm. And uh, Wesley had the same issues in uh, Great Britain. And the term enthusiasm was used uh, to attack um, these kinds of experiences. Well, this is just enthusiasm. And so both of them uh, really became quite astute in analyzing experience. Uh, both of them were convinced um, there are genuine experiences of God, the Holy Spirit, and there are ways in which we can test whether something is or is not. Um, and both of them appeal to two factors in particular. One would be what we would call the internal testimony of the Spirit, uh, the inner witness of the Spirit, or a uh, in Edwards' language, a special spiritual sense. And then both also appeal to, say, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. If it's really the Holy Spirit at work in you, then your life should be transformed and we ought to see the fruit of the Spirit and so on. So we, we usually think of Edwards and Wesley as, well, one's a Calvinist and one's an Arminian Wesleyan. Um, on this issue, uh, they really are remarkably uh, similar in how they approach these issues. So can you talk a little bit like about the similarities of like Wesley and Edwards? Like what are, what are the, exactly the views that they're sharing here um, that are in common? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, for example, both of them were convinced that um, there are some what they would call external evidences for the truth of Christianity. Um, they, they accepted the New Testament accounts of the miracles, so they would appeal to the miracles of Jesus. They would appeal to the resurrection as uh, verifying uh, Christ's claims and uh, so on. Uh, both of them appeal to some of the traditional theistic arguments, the cosmological argument. Uh, so they, they saw a place for what they would call external evidence for the truth of the gospel. But they both insisted that the internal witness of the Spirit uh, is more powerful and more significant. And um, in that, they anticipated where a lot of American I talk about American evangelicals, but it's really global evangelicalism, where a lot of evangelicals are, uh, because most evangelicals will, will place a premium on what we call the testimony of the Spirit or the inner witness of the Spirit, mm -hmm. uh, the experience of the Spirit corroborating these external truths. And uh, again, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, for Edwards, the most significant test was love. Uh, does this experience or this series of experiences result in greater love on the part of an individual? Now, I end up my chapter on uh, Edwards and Wesley by saying there's a lot of really good stuff here. And anyone who really, uh, you know, is immersed in the scriptures uh, ought to resonate with a lot of what is being said. At the same time, they leave a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, um, among them, what is this spiritual sense that Edwards is speaking of? Or how exactly does the inner witness of the Spirit work? 
And in the case of Edwards, um, he leaves us with, on the one hand, yes, love is the preeminent test, but he also acknowledges, look, the devil can produce counterfeits, and the devil can produce a counterfeit of love. And so you're still kind of left with, okay, well, how do you tell the real thing from the counterfeit? So mm. that's that's not meant to belittle the work of Edwards or Wesley. I mean, they're really giants of their time. Uh, it's simply to say they don't solve all the epistemological issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you here, Dr. Nettland, then about like the context of like Christians and like thinking about like their religious experiences. Um, Cause some people you talked about would say that they know God exists through their religious experience. Um, so like, what do you think like for Christians, like how should religious experience play a role in like forming our faith? Like would it be rational to come to like the inclusion that like Christianity is true on like the appearance of like a religious experience? Um, like what is, what's your thoughts here? Yeah, boy, that is huge. Um, yeah. Well, well, let me start by saying um, anyone who really is a disciple of Jesus ought to experience God. So if you have someone who says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I follow Christ, um, I've never had anything that even remotely uh, sounds like an experience of God, uh, then I would say, okay, wow, let's go back to basics here again. But experiencing God is a very broad spectrum of experiences. So I have never personally had a vision of Jesus or um, uh, a theophany or some profound mystical experience. Um, for me, experiencing God comes in the form of a strong inner sense of God's presence as I read scripture and as I pray. Uh, when I face adversity, uh, the peace that uh, Philippians 2 promises, this is something that I have experienced, and I can say, yeah, okay, I know what that's like. Uh, there have been moments when I've had uh, fairly intense experiences where I'll say, yeah, God was really present with me at this time. Uh, but these are all open to interpretation, and, uh, and none of them would come close to Saul's experience on the Damascus Road in, in Acts 9. So experiences need to be understood in the broader context of an epistemic framework. And by that, I mean your background beliefs. Uh, what other commitments do you take to the experience? Every experience we have, we bring all kinds of commitments uh, to that. And so if your background beliefs, your framework includes there is a God, uh, the Bible is God's word, and God does communicate to us through his word, uh, then having an, an intense experience of peace and uh, joy while reading scripture, it's perfectly reasonable to say, yeah, God met me as I read scripture this morning. Uh, on the other hand, someone whose background beliefs are entirely uh, naturalistic and atheistic. Uh, an example I use in the book is, uh, say, two people are out hiking in the mountains, and they look up at the starry sky at night, and uh, one person is a believer and is just overwhelmed by a sense of God's presence as creator and uh, gets emotional and just says, wow, what an awesome creator. 
and his companion is an atheist and kind of goes, meh, maybe, um, maybe it's entirely natural, beautiful, but natural. Um, the broader framework there is very important for assessing how to interpret that experience. Uh, I would say experience is important for believers. Uh, it should never by itself be definitive. Uh, we are mistaken in our mis experiences far too often. Uh, so you need to have checks and tests and the broader framework within which to assess the experience. That's super helpful. Um, so I was thinking about this, Dr. Netlin, as I was reading your book and like other books, I think what you brought up in the beginning is super helpful because I think some people think of religious experiences, you know, you must hear like that voice through the wind or have that like prophetic vision or things like that. Um, but it really doesn't have to be like that to have like a religious experience and experience God. Like I was thinking about this even last week as I was going into work, we had a string of like four or five, just like amazing sunrises. Um, mm -hmm. So as I'm walking to work at like seven, seven fifteen in the morning, it's just like, it's beautiful. Like three sixty, the sky is just beautiful. And I was just like, had this wonder and awe, like the sense of like divinity of like, this is yeah. God. Um, and that's a religious experience. Um, and it may not be like, what you know, it's traditionally like a lot of times like, told is what it is um but that counts in a sense um yes. it's important to think of it that way yes. let me let me add quickly though uh two other contexts and mm -hmm. as i was doing the research i was amazed at how many reports there are in the 20th and early 21st century of uh experiences of jesus and uh for example one book uh oxford press uh, by a Canadian philosopher, Philip uh, Wiebe. He's now deceased. But uh, he did extensive interviews with uh, 30 to 40 um, people, many Canadians, some Americans, uh, many of whom were not religious, who gave graphic accounts of experiences in which Jesus appeared to them uh, and in some cases had visions of Jesus. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, especially when you read these accounts from people who were not religious and were not expecting it. Uh, the other context I would mention is uh, we don't often hear about this in the U.S. Many Muslims around the world are coming to faith in Christ, and there's a pattern in their stories. Many of them talk about having dreams or visions or actual appearances of Jesus. Uh, communicating with them, telling them to go and seek out so-and-so in this village or pick up the Bible and read. So I completely agree with you. A beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, uh, the birth of your first child, I mean, these can be profoundly uh, religious experiences, experiences in which you sense God's uh, uh, creative uh, grace. At the same time, uh, I don't want to minimize uh, special, really dramatic experiences that an mm. awful lot of people seem to have. Again, yeah, I've yeah, not yeah. had those, but there are a lot of people out there who give those reports. I like that because I think the idea of like having balance is super helpful. Um, so the next thing I'd love to talk about with you is like in your book, you talk about like mysticism um, and like how does that play a role? Because there's a lot of like famous Christian mystics. So thinking about like mysticism in the context of mm. talking about religious experience. Yeah, that's... Um, and I initially got interested in this because of my interest in Buddhism and teaching world religions and uh, things like that. 
Um, what I uncovered, though, was really quite interesting. And the term mysticism and the concept of mysticism that we operate with in the West uh, really is a 19th century development. Now, we, we call Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich and uh, others uh, in the Christian tradition, Christian mystics. Uh, but the term had a different use uh, when it was used in the Christian tradition prior to the 19th century. It's really William James, uh, the American pragmatist, psychologist, and philosopher who introduces the uh, modern contemporary notion of mysticism. And so I begin the chapter by looking at James and his influence, and his influence has been profound and I think profoundly misleading. Uh, so he, he gave a certain image of what mysticism is, and uh, it's ineffable, you can't put it into words, and uh, he gives you know, a variety of characteristics. Uh, Rudolf Otto, the German theologian and philosopher, uh, develops that further with his uh, notion of the numinous. And so there developed this idea of mysticism as a kind of direct access to what is religiously ultimate. You bypass all interpretation. Uh, it goes beyond concepts. Uh, it just kind of gives you direct access, pure consciousness to what is ultimate. Uh, the interesting thing, beginning about 1980, uh, in philosophy and religious studies, there was a huge reaction against that uh, mm. because people were really beginning to study carefully uh, Islamic Sufi mysticism, Jewish Kabbalah mysticism, various kinds of Hindu mystical experience, various kinds of Buddhist mystical experience. And the differences among all these experiences just became stark. And mm -hmm. so there's a huge debate on... Um, whether we have really misunderstood this whole category of mysticism and the way that it has played out since William James. But uh, I don't think it's, if you use the word mysticism, I think you have to define very carefully what you mean by it. Mm. And uh, if by that you mean uh, some kind of inner core experience that's at the heart of all the religions, and that is a view that comes out of William James and Otto, uh, I think that's simply wrong. I, I think more recent empirical research has shown that there just isn't that one core mystical experience at the heart of all the religions. Mm. So what are, what are the Christian mystics saying? Um, so like what makes them maybe like a little bit different um, in thinking about like mysticism, especially from like a Christian perspective in the context of religious experience? Yeah, good. Very good. Um, well, it depends on which mystics we're looking at. And I really yeah. don't talk about Christian mystics much in the book uh, because it's really a, a different kind of conversation. Most mm -hmm. of these um, writers and um, thinkers um, operate within the Orthodox Trinitarian Christian framework. Uh, and they do look to scripture as authoritative and or the teachings of the church, depending upon the particular tradition. Uh, but most of them are very concerned to work within the Orthodox tradition. Uh, even the early Protestants uh, at the time of the Reformation, uh, at the time of the Pietists and the Puritans, you have some who are identified as mystics. Mm -hmm. Usually what they are uh, trying to articulate is an intense personal experience uh, 
of the reality of the Godhead. And um, along with that, paradoxically, sometimes there's a real distance from God. So yeah. it's, it's a being drawn into union with God. And then sometimes as part of that, you realize your own distance from God. Uh, then you have some like Meister Eckhart and others who are more controversial and their debates on, you know, how orthodox they might be. Um, but I look at that whole tradition as uh, really quite different from what you have going on in uh, Jain, Hindu, uh, and Buddhist uh, mystical traditions. That's really interesting. So... Ben, I think the most important thing, or not the most important, but, but the thing it's been building up to here, Dr. Netlin, is this question of like religious diversity. Um, so if you want to like talk about like religious experience and have these ideas of like authentic experience of like experiences of God or things like this, how do we de deal with the idea of there being religious diversity in these experiences? Because it's not just like Christians that will claim to have experiences, but like Muslims, Hindus, Jews. Yeah. Um, so how do we begin to like just think about this challenge of religious diversity? It is a huge issue, and uh, it's something the American church really needs to take uh, seriously. Um, within the church, uh, you know, as we um, mentor and train our young people, and uh, I teach in a seminary, in the Divinity School seminary context, we need to take this seriously. This is a world we live in. Let me begin with an example I use uh, to begin the book which I think sets things in context. Uh, in the early 1980s, uh, my wife and I lived in uh, Western Tokyo, and we lived in an area where there weren't many other Americans. And one day my wife met um, uh, an American white woman graduate of the University of Minnesota, just like my wife was. And uh, she was so excited and came home and, uh, you know, I invited her over and uh, we're going to talk and, you know, It'll be good. Mm -hmm. And so the woman arrives. I happen to be out on that day. The woman arrives, and as soon as she gets into the door, she turns to my wife and says, let me tell you how I have found perfect peace and happiness in Sokagakkai Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And then Ruth says she just launched into a beautiful sermon. And, you know, change a few words here and there, and it could have been a wonderful testimony. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's a point. People in other traditions do have profound experiences. They do have experiences that give them peace. Meditation does reduce your heart rate. It can help to give you peace. And so uh, I think we need to begin by acknowledging, yes, there are some very dramatic experiences in other traditions, and people will give testimony to having found the meaning of life, uh, peace, happiness, joy, et cetera, et cetera, and other experiences. Uh, so how, what do you do? How do you deal with that? Um, this is where I think you have to come back again to the broader framework questions. And uh, if all we do is rely upon our experiences, then there's really nothing for my wife to say to this woman. Uh, good for you. I find peace and happiness in Jesus. You found it in Sokagakkai. Great, let's have some tea. Um, the bigger question becomes, uh, in this case, is there really a God? Buddhism teaches no. There is no creator God. Uh, okay, so here you've got a fundamental divide. 
Is there a creator God or not? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is what the New Testament says about Jesus true or not? What is the root source of our problems in the world, human unhappiness? Uh, Buddhism teaches it's desire, it's craving. If you overcome desire and craving, then you overcome the causal chain causing rebirth and all the unhappy things that ensue. Um, Jesus says, no, it's sin. So these are broader framework questions that you have to deal with. And so I think in dealing with issues of religious diversity, uh, we, we need to acknowledge up front, yes, people in other traditions can give sometimes remarkable testimonies. Um, the bigger question is, which is the true framework for understanding reality? Uh, and this will take us back to questions about, well, why should I believe there's a God? Why should I believe what the New Testament says about Jesus? And so on. Or conversely, why should I believe uh, what the Buddhists say about the Dharma? Uh, and so on. So it's a big issue. And uh, just another quick point on the whole religious diversity issue. Um, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be intimidated by these issues. Look, um, all people are created by God. We all bear the divine image. Uh, we all are a mixture of good and evil. We're all sinners in need of uh, forgiveness and repentance. And uh, so um, I think the American church is working through things at a time when there's a lot of fear and a lot of opposition to things that are different. And this in turn can shape how we approach people from other traditions. Look, accept them as human beings, uh, fellow creatures created by God, listen to their stories, uh, challenge them on certain points, and then as appropriate, share why you believe there really is a God and why uh, what the New Testament says about Jesus is true. So I'm curious then at this point, Dr. Nettland, just to talk about like the evidential force of religious experience. Um, Cause I could see like an atheist naturalist, we're going to say like, Hey, we have this phenomenon of religious experience. And it seems like if it goes across like all different religions, well then we have like a good explanation for maybe there's some sort of like natural process that explains religious experience. Whereas the theist like may not have that luxury and they may have to say like, explain like why is it only god acting in certain religions and only apparently others or maybe give us a sort of story about like demons or something it's like where do you see religious experience and like religious diversity when looking at like the evidential force of like religious experience in that kind of context yeah very good uh the last chapter gets into this a little bit and uh again uh i think personal experience has evidential force it is not determinative other factors can be equally or even more significant. And so um, I, I look, uh, look at it this way. A particular individual who has had a really dramatic experience of God, coming back to the critical trust approach, it can be perfectly reasonable for that individual to believe God really met me here. My life has been transformed. Praise God. And on you go. Uh, there may be defeaters that come along the way that will have to be uh, dealt with. But on the individual level, there are conditions, circumstances in which that makes perfectly good sense. 
someone looking from the outside is going to have a different uh, calculation. And um, here, though, I think there are things that, that can be said. And I draw upon an old argument, uh, consensus gentium, uh, you, the argument from consent. It used to be in the form of belief in God. Uh, Cicero, the Roman philosopher, is one of the first who uh, uh, appeals to it. Uh, Calvin actually appeals to it, too. Um, by itself, it's not very impressive. Uh, Linda Zagzebski, philosopher at University of Oklahoma, has developed it in a recent form that I think is very persuasive. And I adapt that a little bit. The fact that so many people throughout history, in many different cultural contexts, claim to have had some experience of God provides some initial evidential support for the reality of God. Uh, it's not a lot. It's rudimentary, uh, but I think it is significant. And I would take that and put that in the broader context of what we call a cumulative case argument for God's existence. So you appeal to uh, factors like uh, fine-tuning of the universe, uh, the Big Bang, uh, all kinds of factors that demand some kind of explanation. And you bring this in as well and say, look, it is significant that so many people throughout history in many different cultures claim to have experienced God. That's one more thing that needs to be explained. And then as part of that, of course, you would have to respond to the naturalistic explanation. Um, is there a compelling naturalistic explanation that is more powerful than evidence for the reality of God. I haven't seen it, but that's part of the uh, debate that would have to uh, be in place there. Mm. Well, Dr. Netlin, this has been a really delightful conversation. I really just enjoyed talking with you. Is there any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap things up here? Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I guess I would simply say um, those who are not yet believers or seekers, as well as believers, Personal experience is such an important component of your lives. Um, mm -hmm. Dig into the issues and uh, invite God to uh, give you that confidence in his reality if you're unsure of it. Um, you might experience God. Mm -hmm. And I encourage everyone to check out the book, um, Religious Experience and the Knowledge of God. Um, did it come out yet? I know it comes out this month, right? When's the exact I believe it's this week or next week when it should be out. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you can check it out on pre-order then. But it's a really good book. And I love it because it's not like super technical and impossible to understand. But it's not just like totally like surface level and like popular level. There's a lot of great um, research and scholarship in there. So really grateful for that. So I encourage you and everyone to check out the book. Um, Dr. Nettlin did a really good job on this one. So thank you so much for coming on today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it too. Take care. Yeah. And thank you everyone who listened. We wish you the best and God bless. We'll see you next time. So bye. Bye-bye.